Hey, thanks for checking out this sermon. Our team worked hard to put this sermon together with you in mind, and we hope it helps you take your next step with Jesus. Enjoy. It's nice to see you, and those of you that are joining us online right now, we're uh, glad that you're with us as well. We're in a series called Made for More, Finding Purpose. What is our mission? And uh, that word mission got me thinking about the old TV show we used to watch, Mission Impossible. How many of you used to watch, not the movie, the TV show? Mission, yeah, there you go. Uh, where each episode, the episodes were all basically the same. Uh, there was a covert ops group led by Mr. Phelps. Okay, the, the right answer was Mr. Phelps. The actor was Peter Graves. Okay, good. And uh, the group was assigned a des uh, desperate, uh, no, not desperate, a dangerous, there it is, mission. And uh, Mr. Phelps would go to an undisclosed location, and he would always find what? A tape recorder. And the tape recorder, he would hit play, and, the, and the, it would always start with, Good morning, Mr. Phelps. And uh, then the mission would uh, get laid out. And he better take notes because at the end of the play, then what happened? The tape recorder self-destructed. And then the Mission Impossible theme song would play. And it was an awesome theme song. Uh, the premise, or possibly just the theme song, was so awesome that then later they uh, parlayed it into six movies starring Tom Cruise uh, as Ethan Hunt. Um, and that song has been looping in my subconscious uh, this whole series because the word mission keeps uh, coming up in our discussion. Uh, specifically today, what exactly is Cornerstone's um, mission? If we are supposed to discover our mission instead of invent our mission, what, uh, what is that and how, how do we find it? So I think in order to discover our purpose and what we are made for, we have to return uh, to Christ's purpose and why he came and see how his uh, mission frames our mission. Because when Jesus came to earth, he was on a mission. Uh, he arrived with a set purpose. And if you even know that plan before you read the Gospels, you see him, what he's doing strategically uh, day by day. Like in Luke chapter 19, when he came through Jericho, uh, and uh, there was a huge crowd with Christ, and uh, there was a, a man there who wanted to, to see uh, Jesus. Everybody wanted to see Jesus. And, uh, but this man was the, uh, the uh, tax collector for that region. Uh, and uh, he wasn't a very popular guy because he was a tax collector. Uh, the locals hated these, these guys uh, for collaborating with the Romans. But also because the Romans didn't care how much taxes were collected as long as the Romans got what they said they needed. So these tax collectors got very wealthy. And uh, Zacchaeus was 
a wealthy man, and, uh, but he was also, uh, let's say, vertically challenged, uh, relatively short guy, and so he couldn't see over people to see Jesus, so he climbed a tree, and when Jesus came by that tree, he looked up and greeted him as if they were old friends. Zacchaeus, hey, uh, come on down, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm coming over to your house. And he climbed down and led Jesus to his house, and it was flattering to say the least. No other religious person had ever been this nice to him. Uh, and of course, the crowd was not having it, uh, but Jesus didn't care. Jesus didn't belong, uh, Jesus belonged to who Jesus belonged to, and today, this afternoon, he's going to belong to Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was so impressed by this that by the end of the conversation, he says, Jesus, I'm going to give half of all my wealth to the poor, and everyone that I've cheated, and I'm sure the line started, uh, I'm going to give them four times as much as I stole from them. And Jesus responded, today salvation has come to this home because this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. And then Jesus stated his mission. For the Son of Man, he said, did not... Uh, the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. This was Christ's mission, to seek and save the lost. It was simply not okay with God that lost people remained lost. And Jesus was willing to talk to any lost person, even people who didn't know they were lost. In John chapter 3, he talked to the premier teacher of Israel who wouldn't have known that he was spiritually lost, and no one would have said this guy was spiritually lost. Uh, uh, and Jesus had no greater enemies in Israel than the Pharisees. Yet when the well-known Pharisee Nicodemus asked to meet with Jesus, Jesus said, sure, let's talk. But then when they talked, Jesus laid out his mission to him. And this is a very famous uh, scripture that most Christians learn early on. Uh, John 3, 16 and 17. This is how God loved the world, Jesus said. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. This was Christ's mission. This is why he came, because it's not okay with God that people perish. And then Jesus goes on, because where other religious teachers were known to be harshly judgmental, he was different. He said, I didn't come to judge sinners. I want instead to save them. So let's review. Christ's mission, first of all, is to seek and save those who are lost, as he said to Zacchaeus, and secondly, to offer everyone who believes in him eternal life, as he said to Nicodemus. Later, he would say to his disciples that his mission was also to die and then defeat death, to make himself a perfect sacrifice for our sin, which is good because we're all sinners, and then to open the gates to heaven for us by defeating death, which is also good because guess what? We're all going to die. And so it's a very good thing that God has prepared for us both the sacrifice for our sins and then opened the gates to heaven. And this was and is his purpose. So Jesus grows into manhood and then begins living out his purpose. And uh, uh, he clarified that purpose even further in Nazareth when he told them that the Holy Spirit had anointed him to bring good news specifically to the poor to release people who had been bound up in addictive sin, to bring healing to the sick and freedom to the oppressed. Because it's simply not okay with God to see people suffer. So he came to fix all that. Everywhere he went, he eased people's suffering while forgiving their sins. He taught people truth about his father, confronting the very religion that was keeping them from God, 
And in less than four years, Christ completed everything that he came to do. And he was ready to return uh, to heaven to prepare a place for us. But right before he disappeared into the clouds, he laid out these clear instructions. Go, he said, and make disciples of all the nations. Teach those new disciples to obey all the commands that I have given you. You've seen what I do and how I do it. I've explained to you why I do it. I've apprenticed you, tutored you, and coached you. And today's your graduation day. Um, now you're, you're not just going to watch me work. I'm not going to be here physically. And you now are the teachers. This was the singular mission, by the way, that Christ gave his followers. These words are the only plan that he had for the expansion of his kingdom throughout the world for the rest of time. Go and make disciples of all the nations. His plan, each generation of disciples would, 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 would teach the next generation of disciples and Christianity would grow organically. Now that was somewhere around 32 AD when he said that. And uh, here we are, 1,987 Years later, and our mission has not changed. Our assignment is clear. Are you ready? I'm going to give you six things, and they'll come pretty rapidly toward you, that, that, that define our assignment, our imitation of Christ, and specifically what he told us to do. Just like Christ, we are to seek and save those who are lost. Our job as a church is not just to form gatherings where people who are found come together and celebrate their foundness. We are to have gatherings where lost people are very welcome, and we don't even refer to them as lost people because it kind of sounds superior, you know. Well, are the lost people here today? Good. Well, the found people are here for you. You know, it sounds like, oh. So uh, it's okay when God talks like that, but we don't talk like that. We, we, we say, once I was lost and now I'm found, and you can be found too. God has found you. Uh, so we seek and save people that are lost. Even if they don't know they're lost, we reach out to them. And then we offer all of them eternal life if they will just believe in him. We don't give them a lot of hoops to jump through. Uh, we just say, hey, we're going to make it as easy for you as Jesus made it for people, offering you eternal life. You just need to put your faith in him. We explain Christ as the perfect sacrifice for sin, and then we bring healing to any sickness like he did. We offer material resources to the poor, and then, as he told us to do, we disciple the new believers. And this is exactly what those first followers of Christ did. They're a great example to us in their imitation of Christ. If you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, you can see it as Luke lays out uh, the discipleship rhythm of the early church. Because as you know, the early church grew from about 125, 130 people to uh, 3,000 in one day, all these new believers to disciple, all these people to explain everything to them, what Christ had taught these people over the past three years. So they got very busy, and people were discipled in groups. And here's what it looked like, Acts 2.42. Read it with me. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. So the church was divided up into uh, smaller homes and the disciples would make the rounds and how, how cool it would be to part, be part of that first church. Because you'd gather in the, in the place where you had kind of either been assigned or where you enjoyed going over to this particular person's house. And that was your church. And they'd say, well, we have a treat today. Uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is going to be sharing with us stories about Jesus. 
And wouldn't that be exciting? Or they'd say, no, today it's going to be the Apostle Peter, and his sermon is, uh, before you open your mouth, engage your brain. You'll love it. He's an expert on this, and since he's been baptized in the Holy Spirit, he's a pretty amazing preacher. So they devoted themselves to the Apostles' teaching and then to fellowship. They they didn't get together just to look at the back of each other's heads. Uh, They had fellowship together. Uh, They ate meals, and they had prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. So the miracles went on. Now Jesus isn't there, but now the disciples are working miracles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give anyone who had in need. Uh, and that was the greatest miracle of all. They, they became unselfish. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. And, of course, that was crazy because the temple courts were managed by the very people who had executed Christ the enemies of Christianity, but the Christians had been given uh, quite a boldness there. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, which does aid in the digestion, um, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. In other words, the people in Jerusalem thought the Christians were pretty cool. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being uh, saved. And then when you go over to Acts 4, and you look at verse 32, it, it, it just kind of goes on with that same thought, telling us that all the believers were one in heart and mind. Wouldn't that be great if the church could be defined that way today? No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. See, they kept the focus on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all, that there were no needy persons among them. Uh, For time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Well, this is a beautiful organization. What a great example they are for us, this large spirit-filled community meeting in the afternoon in the temple courts, but but, but gathering for teaching and fellowship uh, in smaller um, groups. And uh, they, it's like they realized they had been made for more as they lived out their purpose. So in the past 27 years of leading Cornerstone, we're 27 years old. Uh, Cornerstone is now a, a millennial. We've often returned to these texts uh, to be reminded uh, that we also are the church that Christ commissioned to reach The world. We have an assignment, a set task, a reason for being here. And I often reflect, sometimes I even drive by our old house on Stanford Way in Livermore, uh, where Brenda and I opened up the Bible study in the fall of 1992. And it was a group of friends, and um, we had no idea the adventure that awaited us as we opened up the book of Galatians and studied it together. But by March of the next spring, there were over 100 of us gathering. And by then, we had outgrown our home, and we had rented a hall, and we were meeting on Sunday mornings. Uh, Something was happening among us that we knew by now wasn't just about us because our neighbors were glad to accept our invitation and come. Some of them would come, and we didn't even know how they had found out about us. But we gathered, and we sang, and we prayed, and we passed the baskets, and we ate the donuts, and then we opened up our Bibles, and... Uh, for further instructions, and then during the week, we did our best to live out what we had learned on Sunday. We reached out locally and globally, uh, usually to those who had less than us, 
and always to many who didn't know Christ Jesus. Uh, many of us had uh, been had experienced what back then we'd labeled bad religion. Uh, some of us found that in Protestant churches. Others of us found it in Catholic churches. Some of us hadn't been to church for years. But we all had an opinion about what we didn't want our church to become. As a matter of fact, even the word church carried such a, a negative connotation with some of us that we decided to call ourselves a fellowship. And then we set out to uh, discover what that word meant. For the first 12 years, we didn't have a building, an auditorium. Therefore, a building didn't define us. And I actually look back at those times kind of longingly because now buildings do kind of define us. But back then, we didn't go to church because there was no church to go to. So we were the church. And it's interesting how much those little words make a difference. Uh, we didn't say, how was church on Sunday? Uh, that would sound to us like, how was family? What? Uh, how was family? Well, what do you mean, how is family? Our family is family. And that's how we thought of as our church. Uh, and we really did, when Jesus would say things like, I am going to build my church that will storm the gates of hell, we would lean into that and have discussions about what exactly does that kind of a church look like. And someone would raise their hand and say, well, it's not a comfortable church where Christians can just be, come and be comfortable. It's a place where people that we might not have even hung out with on the streets are welcome to come in and join us, and we're going to teach them about the love of Christ, and we're going to love them uh, with the love of Christ and see, see what happens. Uh, we want the people to come to Cornerstone that maybe other churches would kind of, uh, you know, subtly or not so subtly repel. And uh, we wanted a church where generational addictions could be broken, and we wanted a church that offered salvation to every type of sinner. And we wanted a church then that apprenticed that person to the point where they would step into leadership. What's interesting is, over the years, we discovered that our local testimony was directly tied to how well we cared for people suffering locally. It seems that our neighbors didn't really care how much we knew until they knew how much we cared. So we did. We'd find out about local families that couldn't afford a Thanksgiving dinner or presents under the tree at Christmas, and that just wasn't okay with us. So we would bring food and money and Christmas gifts into humble homes where multiple families were packed into small uh, uh, local homes, and sometimes we would pay PG&E bills and rent, uh, bringing Cornerstone into every local neighborhood. And then, as we started ministering to the homeless, it was even people who didn't have a neighborhood. Uh, and we did our best to become their home. Sometimes we found out about people that were far away that needed help. Street orphans in Kenya, trafficked children in the Philippines, Ghanaians drinking putrid water, Haitians digging out after the earthquake, uh, our mantra then was pray or give or go. And many of you in those days took vacation time and paid your way to far off locations. When the tsunami hit Thailand, an entire Cornerstone community group all took vacation time from work and paid their way to Thailand and went and rebuilt uh, this one community, working in this one community that had been flattened uh, by the tidal wave of the tsunami. Uh, when Hurricane Katrina hit the Gulf Coast, wave after wave of Cornerstone men and women spent over a year traveling back and forth to Hackberry, Louisiana for a life-changing year of rebuilding an entire town at no cost to the local people. 
More recently, 1,200 Cornerstone families have sponsored the poorest of the poor children in Chiapas, Mexico, with others of us traveling just over the border to build houses for people to live in and give them to these precious Mexican family. And what's our motivation for doing these things? Christ's love. Christ's love compels us. And it's just not okay with us that people suffer. If we're going to present Christ as the Savior of the world, then at first we get the world's attention by doing some saving of our own. Now, as I've looked back over the last 27 years, I have to admit that uh, we have gotten sidetracked at times. Uh, There's been seasons when we've offered programs and wasted resources on events that didn't press our God-given vision forward. Sometimes we just offer Christians way too many opportunities to be entertained with no challenge to get out and serve. Uh, Sometimes we fell into the the habit of measuring our success by how many people were showing up. Sometimes we mistakenly presented church as a consumable instead of a training facility. Giving people the false impression that Christianity was little more than showing up, coming to meetings when you felt like it, and then going out and living whatever life you wanted to live. But fortunately, by God's grace, and probably because of some of the, the dear older women that pray Uh, in this church, uh, the pastors would identify uh, these things occurring and start to make corrections, sometimes painful, sometimes very unpopular, as we have dissolved entire ministries that we're not performing, that we're not producing the fruit that Christ told us to produce, to seek and save the lost, to set the captives free, and to make disciples, to be the church that storms the gates of hell, to be the church that Christ intends us to be, sacrificing time and money and pouring these resources in to fuel the mission and to not waste time or money on anything else. And this, my friends, is what we intend to do in 2020. My goal as a pastor is to keep us undistracted, undeterred, and focused Only on these three commands of Jesus. Love God, love others, and make disciples. Christ gave the church one response to each and every situation. Love. And he gave us one product to produce. Disciples. On the day that he ascended to heaven, he did not say, go into all the world and create events that people might come to. And then pat yourself on the back when they show up. Christ did not say, go into all the world and build buildings. He said, go and make disciples. Teach them everything I taught you. Apprentice them like I have apprenticed you. Okay, so let's look at the word disciple. Because when Jesus used that word, it was a very clear word to them. It's not a word that we really use that much in 21st century vernacular. Uh, So let's just unpack the word disciple. It simply means student. A disciple is a student. It's an apprentice being mentored with hands-on education. It's a lot less book learning and a lot more doing side-by-side in a group where in the center of the group is the leader or the teacher. Uh, When Jesus discipled them, it wasn't a one-on-one thing like some modern discipleship programs are. It wasn't a weekly meeting with a book 
Uh, Not that there's anything wrong with that, but that's just an incomplete view of discipleship. They were always in a group with Jesus in the center, with Jesus operating and working. And this is still the best model for Christian discipleship. A smaller group where at the center there are the more mature believers, the disciplers, and on the fringes are the students. And the group hangs out all the time and is available to each other 24-7. Uh, a small family, if you will, where the mature are, mature, are, 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 are uh, pouring into the younger. And the goal is always for the younger, for the student, to eventually become a teacher. There's never that sense in the New Testament church where there was a bunch of people who were allowed to just sit back and let a few people do the work of discipleship. The New Testament church model is for everyone to be discipling someone. For everyone to either be, they are being apprenticed, and very soon they begin to take on apprentices, even while they are still uh, being apprenticed. Uh, the teacher has selected you. He's pouring uh, life into you. He's living out their faith in front of you. They, they bring up important life lessons. They, they answer your questions patiently, and they expect you to grow up and someday soon become a teacher. And that's our template for church. You find someone who already looks up to you and then you come alongside them and give them some of your time and energy. You don't have to make discipleship a complicated thing. You don't have to have years of training and classes for how to make a disciple. You can actually go out this week and start making one now. And chances are you already are, but you're not being strategic or intentional enough about that yet. Uh, You just look around and then intentionally include someone in your life that already shows signs that they do kind of uh, look up to you, and, uh, and then you, you invite them into your life. For example, that's what Jim Maley did to me when I was 16, and I had just gotten my first car. And Jim was excited that I had just gotten my first car, but he knew that my dad didn't know a thing about working on cars, and so this mature Christian just took a liking to me. And he didn't say, hey, Steve, you want to get together with the excuse of working on cars, but I'm going to actually disciple you and teach you about the Lord Jesus? I would have said, "Mm, I don't know. He just asked me if I knew how to change the oil in my 54 Chevy and how important it was to keep your oil changed. And I said, I don't know about that. And he said, would you like to learn? And I said, yes. He showed up at my house with all the equipment, which he purchased, and we changed the oil on my car. He said, now in a few months, after this many miles, I think back then we said it was like 5,000 miles, I can't remember. He said, you're going to need to do this again, and when you do, buy the stuff, come over to my house, and we'll do it again together. He asked me, do you know how to change a flat tire? Well, no, I don't. Well, let's do that. Well, it's not flat. Well, it'd be good to learn it now before it is. (laughs) Do you know how to tune up this car? I don't have a clue. Well, this is a really easy engine to work on. So we, we popped the hood and we started working on the engine. But during those times was when Jim would bring up questions about my girlfriend or my walk with the Lord or how's it going at school or whatever. And I knew this guy liked me, so I was just more than willing to talk about it. Before I knew, uh, I realized later he was discipling me. That's discipleship. Uh, it's like what Bob Cook did for me. Bob was one of the most respected Uh, fun Christians I knew back then. Teenagers flocked to this man. Uh, So I felt pretty special when he made time for me. I respected Bob so much that when he flat out told me that God wanted me to be a youth pastor, it didn't occur to me that that was audacious for this guy who wasn't even my dad to be telling me what my life career was going to be. And I just did it. 
Why? Because I admired him so much. I ended up in Bible college, and Professor Norm Arneson discipled me by showing me the value of sitting still with one passage of Scripture and not moving on until you had, what he would say, mined it for gold. And we would sit still with Ephesians 3, 16 through 19 for weeks. Romans 8 took us, I don't even know how long. And this was not just classroom time. He'd invite you over to his house for dinner. But when you came over for dinner, you weren't watching the game. You were doing what he loved to do. But he loved it so much, he caused me to love it. And I'll tell you, if Norm had not mentored me to love the Bible, then I would never have mentored you in the same way. Soon, I was a mentor. At age 21, I was a youth pastor, thanks to Bob Cook telling me what my career was going to be. And thanks to Norm, I knew to get the kids into the Bible instead of just talking about everything they wanted to talk about. I inherited a huge group of teenagers, and year after year, for 10 years, I was a youth pastor, and every year, the seniors would graduate, and a new crop would come in, and all of them potential disciples. And uh, so I raised up some leaders, and we all got to work discipling these kids, giving them someone just a little bit older than them that they could have fun with, but they would be willing to listen to about their faith and about their life choices. We did our best, and now, looking back, it's crazy, because Paul is in his 50s, and he's pulling folks out of poverty in Peru, and Marcus leads an inner-city church in San Diego, and Matt rescues trafficked children from brothels in Cambodia. You know, Tim stayed closer to home. He just coaches at Granada and leads Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And I'm proud of these guys, and many more men and women that I've had the privilege to pour into over the years. And that's all I'm asking you to do. What Jesus asked you to do. I'm asking you in 2020 to select apprentices and get busy. Mentoring, teaching, discipling. And don't let it be an intimidating process. It may mean that you just join the Christian football coaches that, that basically are running the program at Doherty High or at Granada. It may mean you're out at Heritage High. Uh, there was a coach at Heritage High. He had so many kids wanting to talk to him. Instead of about sports, to talk to him about the Lord Jesus, he opened up a Bible study in his home. And that home is packed. Uh, they just go over to coach's house. And they don't talk about football. They talk about the Lord Jesus. That's what I mean. Uh, it may mean that you and a coworker bring lunch once a week to work and, and talk about God and have a word of prayer. Um, I, I don't know what it means for you. One of the beautiful things that Brenda and I are discovering is we discipled our kids and did our best to mess them up. Now we're discipling their kids. What a blast. I don't know what it means for you, but I do know this. Many of us need to get more intentional and stop, stop giving ourselves a pass on discipleship. You know, I said that Christ invited you to do it, but it's a nice way of saying he commanded you to do it. If you want to call yourself a follower of Christ, then do what he said to do and produce what he said to produce. Disciples. So that's how I want us to measure our success in 2020. Not by butts and seats, but how many of you are discipling people and how many of you are being discipled. This is how we'll know if we're the church that Christ envisioned, the church that will storm the gates of hell by how well we loved and how well we trained people that were curious about Jesus. Uh, and that's what it is to be a Christ follower, not just to believe what he said, but to do what he did. You know, I really find it sad when some Christians view Christianity as just them shedding some old destructive behaviors and then living out a nice life. 
they stop there as their own life comes together, not realizing that they've been given an assignment to lift somebody else out of that same pit. I mean, it's great that you're attending a small group. That's real progress. But do you know that at some point we intend for you to be leading a small group? How many years will you allow yourself to be a consumer before you say, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be contributing to this process? Uh, even with something as simple as inviting someone to church. You know, since 97% of the East Bay is not coming to church this week, and you shouldn't have a hard time finding someone you could invite to church. And what's the worst thing that could happen when you invite someone to church? Think about it with me. What's the worst thing that could happen when you invite somebody to church? Are they going to punch you in the face? Are they going to reject you and never speak to you again? What are they going to do? They're going to say yes or no. And you say, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll invite you again in a couple months. Well, okay. A couple months later, hey, I, you know, we're still going to church. Would you like to go with us? You know, they say that some people need three or four invitations before they'll come. But we have to be a little more persistent than we are. And you know what the coolest thing that could happen? They might just say, you know what? I was wondering if you were going to invite me to your church. Uh, I was preaching a sermon years ago, and I was doing such a great job with the sermon. I looked down, and there was my neighbor. And I thought, how did he get here? And I went down, and the sermon was actually about inviting people to church. And he was just smiling at me. And he, he finally went like this, like, no, the other neighbor invited me. You never invited me. <laughs> True story. But see, that's the thing about our neighbors. Uh, since only 3% of us are in church today, there's a good chance that uh, no one else invited that person uh, and uh, and, and, and you're, only you live next to your neighbors. Only you work at that company. Uh, only you go to school where you go. Uh, you may be the only Christian that someone knows. This is why it's so important. And I don't want to lay a guilt trip on you because it's the Holy Spirit's job to save people. But we, have, we are to be fishers of men. And so we need to keep throwing that line in. You're not going to catch any fish when your line's not in the water. And so uh, uh, what we do is we don't make it an obligation. We make it a joy because we really love, we just decide it's not okay with us that people we already care about don't follow after Jesus. Uh, and honestly, if you can't think of anyone, you could just invite someone who already goes here to hang out with you. We recently discovered by survey that 38% of our church population now, Cornerstone's the first church they ever went to. Well, what does that tell you? Well, they didn't grow up like you did. They didn't grow up learning the Bible stories. They don't know Noah from Moses from Peter. So it's not like you have to take seminary courses in order to walk someone through some scripture and talk to them about the love of Christ. Uh, it's crazy to think that over one-third of us are here. This is your first church experience. So I think this year, even if we all just discipled uh, each other, we would make a lot of progress. Because discipleship doesn't happen in big room settings as well as it does in small groups. Uh, in church, the church this size, you really just come and say hi to some people that you probably already know. And then you sit and look at the back of someone's head while Steve talks, usually about 10 minutes too long. And that's church. And you go home and say, well, I learned something that was really great. But that's not a church, that's not a complete church gathering. The complete church gatherings are happening in three places. And it's interesting that at these three settings is where everyone is making those discipleship connections that maybe you haven't been able to make. So I would say if, 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 if you'd like to, to go a little deeper in relationship at Cornerstone, you could join one of three groups. Ready? Here we go. A group that's serving regularly. 
all right? A group that's serving regularly. Two, a group that's just meeting regularly to study their Bibles and eat and have a good time. Like they're called community groups. Or a mid-sized gathering. We have these mid-sized gatherings where maybe 50 to 150 people with a common interest will, interest will gather on our different campuses. And that's where a lot of these relationships are going deeper around these tables. You could attend Mom to Mom in Livermore. You could join a dinner service. You could hang out with the homeless with us on Monday. Uh, you, could, uh, you, could, you could come to one of our Christmas events. The idea would be for you to show up uh, where the event, the intention of the event is to connect people uh, with each other and help them to have satisfying Christian friendships. Because you know what's really interesting? That's discipleship. A satisfying Christian friendship is a discipleship of its own. So I say all that to say this. You were made for more. Turn to your neighbor and tell them that. Now, some of you didn't do that. You kind of went, I ain't doing that. So we're going to do it again. Turn to your neighbor and tell them you were made for more. And your church exists to help you find that purpose, but we can't do it for you. Chances are your life purpose has a lot less to do with accomplishments than it has to do with relationships. Uh, starting with your relationship with Jesus who said, love God, love others, and disciple. Jesus' model was to build community and out of that community to change the world. Uh, and so what happens is you start by just showing up at church and saying, wow, I didn't used to go to church so regularly. And then that becomes your entry level into a smaller group that's either serving or studying their Bible. And in that group, you find the relationships that you crave and you find people that like you too. And then you might find someone who, guess what? You know more about the Lord than they do, more about the Bible than they do. And you start to get together on a little bit more regular basis and organically a discipleship relationship has started. So here's your action step. I encourage every person who has heard this sermon not to say, well, I'm going to do that later. But before next Sunday to have said, this is who I think God is calling me to disciple. This is their name. Like if I just in conversation came up to you and said, who have you decided to spend more time with in discipleship? And you'd give me a name. What's interesting is some of you dads, you need to give me the name of your own children. Because your child craves time with you. And you are their hero. Believe it or not, you are the one that, that's going to be in their head years later. And you need to make sure that you've said not just clean your room and behave yourself, but also, I love you. And you know, I love the Lord. And and I want to make sure that you understand these Christian principles that are as important as changing your oil. Um, and I want to hang out with you because you're my kid and you're cool. But then above and beyond that, there are kids that don't have a dad. And there are, there are kids that don't have a dad, but the kid is 50 years old and he still doesn't have a dad. And he'd really love to have you be their, his friend. And uh, it's hard for the younger to ask the older. That's why the older is supposed to ask the younger. It doesn't ever really work when the younger asks the older either. Uh, you notice uh, Jesus chose his disciples, and that's what you are called to do. And then what, what do you do once you choose them? Just start coming alongside them. Just start sharing life with them. Uh, always be willing to pray for them. And what happens is the great thing is that we all benefit. One of the, thing that keep, one of the things that keeps me vibrant as a Christian is pouring myself into other Christians. Uh, I've grown so much over the years by knowing that someone was watching me 
and they would be imitating in me. If we all do our part here in 2020, our database says that there are 10,000 people that would tell you that Cornerstone is their home church somewhere in the Bay Area. Our database says there are 10,000 of us. If we all would take this seriously, in 12 months, there would be 20,000 of us. Not that the numbers are the issue, but the problem is there's just not enough Christians in the Bay Area. And we're not going to get more Christians in the Bay Area by large group gatherings. We're going to get them one at a time, just like you catch fish. And so, man, I've talked so much about fishing today. I want to go fishing. Let's go fishing. Um, but the idea being, let's all take it as a responsibility of our own to love people enough, to be bold enough to say, you know, hey, you want to hang out more? You want to? And then next thing you know, we really are talking about the Lord Jesus. In the next seven days, identify who that person or people are and make some progress toward that in a natural way. All right? Are you with me? All right, let me pray for you. Lord, make them bold. Give them insight. Give them a picture of a person right now uh, that they could uh, give that Give that mom a picture of another mom. And they're both really busy with those kids. But she's noticed that the other mom looks kind of frantic and frazzled. And maybe she could uh, pitch in and, and, and give some help and just be a friend. Lord, help us to keep this at a very simple level and not turn it into a program. But Lord, I just pray that you would grow our church in this way, one disciple at a time. And everyone agreed and promised to do what I said. By saying, ha, ha, ha. amen. Love you guys. We'll see you next time.